Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, and more. The handler one day told her this whole thing about how they've been terraforming on Mars and they're building a colony and they're recruiting specific people of specific bloodlines and specific talents and skill sets to go onto the planet. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to Around the Coin. My guest for today is Adam Hoffman, the founder and CEO of Nimble. Nimble is a decentralized and democratized insurance protocol built on Algorand. They've raised over $8 million with over 20 employees. And Adam is a 22-year veteran of the insurance market. So we talked about what insurance is, the history of insurance, and all the considerations that make insurance better on Web3 than Web2. But I did push back, and we talked about the detailed intricacies of what a free market or a regulated market would look like for insurance on Web3. Hope you enjoy this conversation. We went deep and really explored the nuances of macroeconomics and microeconomics. If you do, please like, share, subscribe to the channel and hope you enjoy. Here is Adam Hoffman. Adam, I'm excited to talk with you. Thanks for hopping on the podcast today. I appreciate it. Yeah, man. I'm happy to be here, Mike. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah, you're one of my uh, most anticipated guests. I, wow. I think, well, I, I think what you're working on just has obvious practical use in the world. Whereas sometimes I talk to founders where it's difficult to understand. There's layers of abstraction from what they're building to what someone can actually use. And insurance to me seems like, um, you know, people have talked a lot about it. Another one that comes to mind is like credit how credit's yeah. kind of centralized. But I'd love to hear, what, what, um, how do you describe what you hope to accomplish with Nimble and, and where you think it can go in the future? Yeah, that's a great, uh, first of all, I want, I want to kind of pause on that whole concept of insurance is understandable. So Nimble is decentralized insurance. That's what we're building. But the funny thing is, when I have conversations with people, They'll say, you know, hey, I don't really get insurance. I don't understand insurance. It's, But then those same people will totally understand a centralized exchange or an NFT evolving project that has advanced tokenomics. I'm like, it, you know, it's, it's, you use insurance all the time. Like everyone does. So um, I, I'm glad you said that because that's how I feel. And sometimes I get stuck in that 22 years in insurance. Of course, I understand it. But I think everybody does. I think. The traditional insurance industry has done a good job of making people feel like it's more complicated than it than it actually is. So they feel like it's like, oh, how is anyone going to understand this? But 
that's a um, a long way around to say that Nimble is decentralized insurance. So we're building uh, a blockchain-based insurance marketplace, licensed insurance marketplace that operates similarly to Lloyd's of London. So that's a good kind of touch point. We can dig in more, but that's like the high-level view. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's dig in. So how does Lloyd's of London operate? Yeah, so Lloyd's is the place that insures everything. So like when you hear like... um you know, Adele's vocal cords and Mick Jagger's lips and like th they insure all that. The, f the interesting part about Lloyd's is when they first started, Lloyd's was actually the coffee house where like kind of wealthy people hung out. And when people were shipping goods, the, these, these wealthier people would say, hey, we'll, you know, we'll pay if you have, if your ship sinks, but you have to pay us a fee to take that risk. That fee now is premium. So the way Lloyd's works now is it's a marketplace. So it'll take any risk and their partners, their managing partners will underwrite that risk. That just means look at the data. How risky is it? Should it even be insured? Is it something that's insurable? And how do we set up a premium for it? From there, they have a whole bunch of capital partners who say, now that we know the model, we're going to put $10 billion behind it or, you know, whatever it may be, right? and then collect a portion of that premium, that's the profit. So that's how Lloyd's works. Nimble is doing the same thing, but busting down the walls to allow retail investors to participate as well in the, the you know, trillion dollar insurance industry. You and I haven't had the opportunity to say, yeah, I'll, I'll invest in Adele's vocal cords or you know, what, mm -hmm. whatever it may be, but to participate in insurance and make some money back. And does participate mean underwrite? Are those the same, effectively the same uh, verbs? No, there's, there's many ways. So if you think of insurance um, from like almost three categories, right? You have the insureds, the people looking for and buying protection, basically. And you could use anything, a car, a, you know, a collection of baseball cards, whatever. But, but people who are willing to pay the premium so that if something happens, they have insurance protection. That's one part. Another participant in the insurance process is on the other side, the capital providers. So those are the ones who say, we will put our own money up and put it at risk in case there's a claim. And for that, we will make investment income, but we will also take a portion of the premiums. And that's how they, they operate. In the middle of that is the category of insurance professionals. And that's underwriters, like you're talking about. So underwriters who understand the risk. It's important too to say a lot of times we hear underwriters and we think like um you know you listen to NPR and it's like underwritten by it's underwriting and insurance is really about terms, conditions, coverages. And then there's actuaries also the actuaries are the ones who put the math tables together to determine what the rates are. So those are kind of the three categories. You got insureds, insurance professionals, and then capital providers. And you Got can participate okay. in any, any way within that system. And the way traditionally now that the actuaries and the underwriters operate is they work closely together to create the contract and then the fee schedule. So the underwriters would say, th these are the set of circumstances for which this would qualify for reimbursement. And then mm -hmm. the actual amount that it qualifies would be the actuaries domain. Yeah. So that's, yeah. So the underwriters have a better understanding of what fits the insurance company's risk appetite. So like Lloyd's, Lloyd's will do, you know, a firework factory that's next to a, you know, who knows, like a pyrotechnics facility, like something weird and wacky. 
but they don't really want to do, you know, your car, right? Mm. Whereas the person who insures your car, like Allstate or Progressive or whoever it may be, they don't want to touch something that's crazy risky, like a fireworks factory. Mm -hmm. So the underwriter's job is to make sure, does this fit the, um, the risk profile? Does, how risky is this? How much profit do we need to make in order to take this risk? And then the actuaries, yes, they work closely with them to say, all right, well, this is how we should rate it. This is what the rate structure should look like. And this is how we can continually report what our rates are. And if you were to boil down the underwriting and actuary work to its simplest first principles, would it be predicting the magnitude of the cost and the frequency? Are those kind of the, mm-hmm. you know, how often for every hundred pyrotechnic offices mm-hmm. that are located next to this, how often is that going to blow up? Is this once every year, once every hundred years, thousand right. years, and then how much does it cost? Is that the, or are there other so th- things? No, th- th- that's basically it. So there's frequency and there's severity, right? Mm-hmm. So some insurance companies and underwriters and actuaries may be interested in something that is very unlikely to happen, like a, a satellite, right? Like I'll, you know, I'll insure a satellite because the likelihood of it happening, falling from the sky or something is very low. But if it does happen, the severity is tremendous. And that's mm-hmm. how they'll build their models. Others are lower severity, but higher frequency. So like something that cell phone insurance, right? Like people drop their cell phones all the time. So the claims are very small, so it's still profitable. But that's, so they look at it from severity, frequency. And one thing that they do a horrible job at is looking into the, like looking forward. Now, no one can look into the future, which is what I was about to say, but no one can do that. But they take past data to make decisions moving forward. But they, they don't do a great job at looking at the profile or helping someone who's buying insurance become safer. Mm-hmm. To me, it's almost, it's like health insurance, right? Like if we can help people be safer, whether it's with smart contracts or it's with real world assets or whatever it may be, it's good for everyone. Cause now you don't have a claim, which is the ultimate goal. You're not, you don't want to have a claim if you're buying insurance, but if you do, you want to be made whole. But if that claim's avoided, so the rates go down, everyone's, everyone's in a better place. So that's the one, the one thing that the traditional industry doesn't do well is kind of take those things into consideration and be proactive. And is that, do you think that the traditional industry do, doesn't take a proactive stance because it, it, it doesn't, they're not financially incentivized to do so <laughs> because technically their margins wouldn't change? Like maybe the premiums go down, but how does that help them? Is it? Yeah. And I hate to be negative about it because I want to give them the benefit of the doubt. First, first things first, the underwriters and the actuaries who are doing the work are employees. So they're given, you know, guidelines and what to do and how to do it. And usually it goes through like six levels of approval and all this stuff. But you're hitting on something like that's huge. And we call it the disincentive loop, right? So if I'm an insurance company and you're paying premium and I help you be safer, that's going to cost me money. Mm-hmm. Your premium's going to go down. And like you said, maybe it eats into my margins, right? But even worse is when you consider how they do it. So if, if, they, if an insurance company, traditional insurance company has a loss ratio of 80%, they're basically saying for every $100 we take in, we pay out $80 in claims. 
that sounds like, oh, okay, wow, they, their profit's only 20%. And even that can get taken away in operating expenses and things like that. But what they don't dig deeper to say is, of that $80, 40 of it may be the cost it takes to investigate and settle the claim. Oh. So, right. So you're looking at 80% and you're thinking, oh my God, insurance is, is wacky, right? Like, they, that's how many claims there are? No, that's how much it costs, in, including in that is the cost to adjust the claim. So to settle it, to the person who picks up the phone, the person, what incentive do they have to make that process more efficient? Well, they, I, I would think that they do because similar to like a grocery store, if I go into a grocery store and there's a box of cereal that's, I don't know, $5, the, that cost of the cereal is, you know, maybe half of it goes into the actual manufacturing of the cereal, but then there's the box, there's the employees, electricity for the buildings and everything else. So the actual price you pay for the goods that you want are, are probably around 50%. So insurance in that uh, loss ratio, it seems like the similar example, they have an incentive to be more efficient. They want, you know, they, they want to offer me the cheapest price for the cereal because that's where I'll go. The insurance company is financially incentivized, at least on paper, to offer me the best deal in, comp in competing with other insurance companies, right? So they would want yeah. to offer the, the highest, uh, what would you call those, payouts? Yes, yeah, right. You would think, right? Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, the way that model works is when they file their rates with whatever jurisdiction they're in, right? Like let's, if it's one of the states, right? All 50 states have different insurance um, commission and insurance regulations. But when they file those, the Department of Insurance or Department of Revenue or Safety or Finance, whatever it may be, they look at those numbers. So if my 80% loss ratio is there and I'm looking for a 2% rate increase, that's justified. Like they can look at that and say like, yeah, but if I have a 30%, 40%, 50% loss ratio and I still want a 2% increase, it's not going to get approved. I'm going to have to lower my rates. And everybody knows like, Rates have not gone down. Like rates, they, they very rarely go down. We see the opposite, actually. So we see a lot of price uh, premium optimization, which goes against everything I think that insurance is, is set out to do, right? So Mike's a loyal customer of ABC Insurance Company. Mike pays his premium all the time. Your rate, when it gets down to it, and people who fit that, fall into that same bucket as you, your insurance premium goes up. Let's just say it goes up, you know, 10%. And me, I shop all the time. Every three years I'm shopping, I'm looking for a different, my rate is actually better than yours. Regardless, I mean, there are risk metrics in there, but if you take that pure base premium, I'm getting a more favorable rate because I'm not loyal. Hmm. That doesn't make any sense. So the, the math in there is just, that's why we call it the disincentive loop. You keep dropping those things in there and you're like, they're actually incentivized to not be helpful. Right. And that's, like, is, that, is that strictly because of the government, uh, the artificial halving of premiums and the, the government intervention? Regulation has a, big part, has a big part in it. And and this is one of the things that I'm constantly talking about is that like in that regulation, I do believe that most regulators have consumers in mind when they think about regulation, historically at least. Mm. And when, but what happens is you create all this and you're creating a system that's really hard to get into, right? It's really until 
decentralized technology, blockchain, crypto came to be competing in the insurance space was if you increase your rates 5% and I increase my rates 4.8%, I'm attract, I'm more attractive than what you're doing. But new entrants couldn't come into the space to foster and drive that kind of competition because the regulatory landscape was so challenging. So what's set out to protect consumers has never um, done that. So in Massachusetts, they went to a system called managed competition, which I don't know when that was, but God, it was either, you know, that's 15 years, 10 years ago, something like that. But the intent was, oh, we'll get managed competition. So when people buy auto insurance, we're going to be forcing kind of like letting people, letting carriers not have just one rate across all of Massachusetts, which is the way it used to be. Every carrier, the same rate. Everyone said the rates are going to go down because if you're forcing competition, someone's got to be lower. The rates didn't go down. They continued on the same path because ultimately, who's going to be the first person to say, this year our rates are down 10%? No one. No one's, no one's taking that. So yeah, that system, no matter how hard the regulators try, just doesn't seem to ever go the way of the consumer. But let, let me just reverse engineer this a little bit. So if there's 10 different insurance companies in some population, the one that offers, and they all offer, say, hypothetically, the exact same coverage and everything else, the one that offers the lowest price, even by a slight margin, should take the vast majority of the business. What, why, in your example, why would that not be happening? So there's a few things. One is that there are people who understand insurance is more than just a premium, right? Like that. You know, you can mm -hmm. buy insurance from someone who just regularly denies claims. And, right. you know, the argument is like, well, take them to court. Who, who the heck wants to take anyone no. to court? Yeah. Like it's not right. But the the other side of that is the pain in the ass that is the insurance industry. So if you look at statistics, it says, you know, the statistics are 70 percent. Well, the way they frame it is 30 percent of insurance consumers are fairly happy with their service, which to me is insurance speak for 70% of people are unhappy, right? 70% mm -hmm. of people are unhappy with insurance. 80% uh, of insured stay with the same carrier. So even though 70% are unhappy, still the vast majority just stay where they are because are you really going to fill out paperwork, go to the registry? What are all the things you might have to do? Notify your mortgage company, send in appraisals, whatever it may be. To save 1%, mm -hmm. most people aren't because it's just a pain, in the, it's a pain in the butt. And the system is, you know, call an agent. And I love agents. I think agents are great and a necessary part. Caveat to that, good agents are really good and really necessary. But, you know, that creates a lot of barriers for you, right? So, like, you're looking at it, you're like, I could, my rates went up 5%. I can move over here for 4%. I just, I don't have the time. You know, so that's what I, I'm trying say. to understand. Well, I guess what I'm trying to get to is, is there an architectural difference, say, between the way that the free market operates in insurance and the way, say, like airline miles work? Like, you know, I would choose uh, Virgin Airlines over uh, American Airlines if they were the same price because I place maybe a 5% premium on the experience that I know I'm going to get with Virgin. If I'm you know, flying just with my backpack, I'll go on Spirit Airlines, but if I'm going with a family, I, so there's, there's externalities that are embedded into the, it's not just price, but those tend to be factored in. You could, there's review sites, there's a way that that 
that transmission yeah. of value differential is distributed into the market and effectively priced into the price. And then you have, so you have, you have that, which is the intangible price distribution. And then you have like Kayak and Google, which are just listing the hard prices. Mm. I would imagine an insurance is similar, right? I know maybe Geico is, tends to be a little bit better. This one is a little bit worse, but like, I'm going to go with this one because it's, there's, a, so that, would, yeah. is that how it's, is that, bro is that now broken in some way? It is broken in some way. In the ways that it is not broken is that, and that's the role of a good agent too, to be able to say, yeah, you can save, you know, 15% or more, but you're not going to have the right coverage when it comes to a claim. Mm -hmm. It's going to be a pain in the butt, right? Like all that kind of stuff. That is absolutely true. Some people don't care. Just like some people will fly Spirit Airlines, Spirit Airlines, mm -hmm. no matter what, right? The difference is, imagine if on, you know, whatever, JetBlue, the seats are all, if the same like economy seats are all $100, but yours are, yours is 120 because the last time you were on a plane, you were loud and people didn't like you. So you're riskier on the plane. So then you have all this thing where it isn't standardized, right? Mm. So that, you know, that, that value that you pay in having a claim settled, it is, if, it would be similar to saying, that's how they charge your airline fares based on your past experience on airplanes or if you were late to the gate or if you held up the plane. But also, you know, the plane might crash 10 to 20% of the time. Like, mm -hmm. that's going to change everything, right? So in insurance, denying claims all the time, as much as it's frustrating, it actually doesn't happen. So you have this, like, what is the benefit from going from company A to company B? If it's just 1%, except maybe like they've tried everything in insurance. They've tried like you can have uh, IT people come to your house and help you set up your computers. And it's like nobody wants to use that. Like, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like they buy insurance for very few reasons. They have to or they want to. And most people fall into the they have to category. You have to. Mm -hmm. There's not mm -hmm. a deep understanding of like I'm going to go from you know, Boston to Florida on this plane and I need to get there. It's like I bought a new car and I need insurance for it. Mm -hmm. If you own crypto and leave it on the exchange where you bought it, like Coinbase, that is a mistake. We've heard the news lately. Exchanges closed, accounts frozen. We're learning the hard way that crypto on exchanges is not really in your control. So what can you do about it? Well, you can get a crypto wallet and control the crypto yourself. And that's why today's show is sponsored by ZenGo. These guys realize that storing Bitcoin and storing crypto yourself can be difficult. It's risky to keep private keys. They realized this and said there's got to be a better way. So they created a crypto wallet that is fully recoverable. So say goodbye to lost Bitcoins. And the security of this wallet is incredible. It's a hacker's worst nightmare. They use a three-factor authentication, including 3D biometrics, so no one can access your wallet except for you. And Zengo realizes that at different levels of the crypto journey, you have different needs. So they offer 27 support and have real people that are available to contact directly within the app. They have a bunch of different coins, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Tezos, and more, and they have all sorts of NFTs available as well. So now for the first time, you can keep your crypto safe with the same tools that the big guys have used for years. Download Zengo, that's Z-E-N-G-O, 
and use code ATC to get $20 back on your first purchase of $200 or more. That's $20 back for your first purchase of $200 or more. Use code ATC and check out Zengo. Yeah, I mean, there, there seem to be some things in life that you uh, that are more compulsory. You know, I, I have to uh, get, what would be another example? I have to buy food, right? But that, mm-hmm. that doesn't yeah, necessarily good, mean yeah. there can't be an efficient market for food distribution and pricing. The um, difference is, like, like the difference is, you know, I could go to the grocery store and look at all the different milk, right? Like whatever, like, and I could say, I don't want to drink milk. I want almond milk, but wow, it's a lot more. And I can make that decision for myself for health reasons. I have the, the budget to, to buy that. Other people can't, but there is no, I mean, there's regulation there too, right? Like you're not going to buy a gallon of milk that might kill you, right? But in insurance, because as you described with the cereal, you know your costs. Mm-hmm. Your costs are there. How much was the cereal? How much was the overhead? How much was the packaging? How much? In insurance, everyone's potentially, you could have no claims for 20 years and then have a million dollar claim. Mm-hmm. It, it just becomes, it's not as choice driven, even though people do make choices. And they do. People leave for 15%, regardless of what the coverage is. People stick with the same company because they've been with them for 20 years and they really like the people they deal with. Those choices are still part of that market, but the rates mm-hmm. don't necessarily, it's almost like they're separated from the price because they're making those decisions because they're not paying 10% more than someone else. That, that's, that's very rare. And so your, your, your claim is that the, or your view is that the pricing is very, is, is almost collective across the market is inefficient. And I would imagine that's, that could be true if there's one player in the space because they have no uh, competitive force pushing prices down. But why would that be true in a market, even in the traditional insurance market, where there are many different players there? Is it because government it comes in and? I think it's because, you know, this is why I don't want to be too negative. Now, first of all, insurance companies have a ton of things that they have to do, right? They have a lot to do. And leaving it to insurance companies to make a process more efficient is just not going to be on the top of their list. It's just not a priority. They have regulation to deal with. They have claims to settle. They have customer service. They have overhead. They have all these things, new and emerging risks. But so you can't say it's just insurance companies and you also can't say it's just government and regulation. But what I tend to think is it's just this slow evolution to this kind of, oh, well, that's the way it is. Like, Mm. that's what it feels like to me. I spent 22 years in insurance and very many of those was explaining how insurance works to either, you know, people buying insurance for their house or their cars or later in my career to corporations buying it. And it's a really tricky thing to explain when you're in the position of a risk manager, risk advisor, insurance agent, because there's an understanding that insurance companies have to make money, right? Like, just like you... But I got to a point in my career, and that's kind of when I left and, and started Nimble, was like, yeah, that's not a sufficient answer. Like, you can still make money and be uh, develop better rate structures and develop better ways to reward your employees and develop better ways to make a system that creates, act, like, really keeps people safe. And and that, to me, is where it's, it is. It gets fuzzy because yeah. you would think, logically, it just, 
why wouldn't someone just take a 5% rate increase? But I, it's almost like, I mean, sorry, 5% rate decrease or, because they don't have to. Like, I mean, Geico's entire marketing budget is save 15% or more. They don't tell you over what, they don't tell you how, they just say save 15% or more. That's probably by cutting coverage that mm -hmm. you're not going to know until the event of a claim. And then what the insurance industry does a good job of saying is, well, this is a contract. You signed a contract. It's all, and it's like, who's reading a 50-page document? Mm -hmm. They're kind of relying on that. And when you find out something isn't the way you want it, it's a little bit too late. So yes. that's why yes. like, it doesn't really have an incentive yeah. to change. They have a lot going on, and, and that's what they're focused on. That's Innovation is usually one of them. So I, I think of, I, I generally think of markets, I'll use this uh, sort of like metaphorical analogy as like an ecosystem or like a forest, like a rainforest, where you have the old trees, you have the old animals that have been around for a while. And then eventually through the diversity of death and rebirth, things maintain uh, vibrant, like the ecosystem itself is vibrant. And for an ecosystem to be vibrant, there has to be competition. There has to be varying levels of offerings, right? You can eat this mm -hmm. bug or this bug or that one, this one might kill you, that one might kill you. But, and there's, there's risk based into that. And so I think in our world of, uh, you know, we have an ecosystem of products and services out there. I, I try to analyze why, why would there be decay? What would cause that to happen? <laughs> and one of I the things I think, it, it, yeah, it's kind of interesting. It's like one of the things I think would lead to decay is if there's it's like a, a group that has just, it's like a, a like a, an animal that has um, exploited, like completely uh, drained all of the juice. So like an insurance industry together has a, it's like a collective diabetes. They're like, mm -hmm. they're, they're so fat from their own profits that they're not seeing uh, the, the, the opportunity and, and they can't get after it. And this is where the new young, vibrant, founder, entrepreneur, or whatever would come in typically as the mm -hmm. old thing starts to decay and they would mm -hmm. like take all the cheese, right? They would, they would attract people to buy their products or if they're an animal, they're like, you know, but that's not happening. And I tend to think maybe the reason is that it's just too difficult to allow young uh, sprouts, new companies to emerge because of the regulation. And that's it. That is that Mike is 100%. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, take that vibrant ecosystem where you know, one tree dies and that another tree grows, but it grows in a different way to face the light or whatever. You take that same thing and put a biodome around. Totally. And every time you're like, hey, I wanted to introduce this new creature, you know, we're just going to drop it in there and see if people like it and see if it works. If it's, if it doesn't work, we'll take it out. Yeah. You know, nope. Nope. In order to do that, you have to pay a hundred million dollars and get a hundred different licenses and stuck. And then people are like, well, then forget it. I'll just try to retrofit fit that animal that's already in there mm -hmm. to be better. And that is a very hard thing to do. <laughs> like, right. You know, I'm going to try to take that, you know, sloth and make it a cheetah. It's like, yeah, right. I mean, you can spray paint it or whatever, but like, it's not right. going gonna to work. That's what the insure tech industry has been doing. It's been, and not because the insure tech industry is bad, but because they've been forced to, they've been forced to play by a set of rules that, you know, they, they can't innovate in. It's, it's, the barrier to entry financially and otherwise is really high. Right. That's fascinating. It's almost like the, the, the macroeconomic pervasive fallacy is that competition yields good products at good prices for customers. And what's not factored in, the why that's a fallacy, is that it's not just about the number of players in the space. 
It's the ease of which a new players can can pop up and, and create. So it's like yeah. we might have eight insurance companies in a market, but if you don't, if it's not easy or at least possible to start a new insurance company, though all the eight of those are going to be overpriced and stagnant. And yeah. Just, so yeah, that's a that's, that's that disincentive. Yeah, right. Like that's that kind of like there's no reason for them to because they still have to meet the regulations. They still have capital requirements. So it's not like. God, I, I don't think it is. It's not like they're like, you know, twiddling their thumbs and doing maniacal like laughter and saying, ha But, you know, I also think it's not fully trans. It's not transparent at all. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, yeah, that's 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 what it feels like. Yeah. And it's like I, automotive is kind of a good corollary, too, because the automotive industry seemed to hit this plateau as well, where, you know, you got like four or five, six different auto companies out there. They don't seem to really be doing anything. There's occasional yeah. like features power windows or we got dual exhaust but exactly and then yeah. it's like okay there it's possible to start a tesla and because yeah. tesla was possible it wasn't prevented by it may be hard but it's not pre pre prevented by regulation now the whole ecosystem is is enriched again you have like four or five other electric car companies all the car companies are like I bet now, if you look at Ford today or GM, they're way more dynamic and innovative yep. today than they would be 10 years ago because Tesla pushed them, right? I love that. I love that, Mike, because it's, it's, I had never thought of that. And I love that because you're right. Like, you know, sure, Elon Musk had enough money to, you know, do whatever he had to do to take Tesla to the next level and all that. But I think your point is, yeah, I, there's no way you would have seen a, um, electric Ford truck. It could, and, mm -hmm. and that's so good, Mike, because the, the similarities are, are spot on because I always say insurance is, and I'm going to correct this now. I say insurance is the only industry I can think of that tells its consumers what they want and doesn't like listen to the consumers. It's like, no, you need this mm -hmm. coverage. We're going to give it to you at this high price, blah, blah, blah. Here's some benefits that if you do use them, we're going to cancel your insurance because we didn't really want you to use them. But the auto industry is that way, where it's like, yeah, we want electric cars. No, you don't. You want SUVs. Like, no, we. And then here comes Tesla and here comes the Model 3, especially. And it's like, no, we definitely want that. And now they're like, oh, yep, you guys want an electric truck. It's like, mm -hmm. yeah, we've been saying that for 20 yeah. years. Yeah. You know, and yeah. it's like this fear about they might lose money. But, you know, in the space we're in now with decentralized technology and blockchain, and it's like, you don't actually have to lose money. Like yeah. these insurance companies don't actually have to use, lose money. It's like that ecosystem that you're talking about is like, you want to show them that like, if you remove that biodome, right, you're actually going to make, you're going to be, you're going to enjoy them even more vibrant. Community. Yeah. Like they have so much money. Yeah. That it's not going to just disappear. It's like the music industry. Yeah. Like everyone's like, that's the end of the music industry, Napster and streaming and you know, there's still a lot of problems in the music industry, but they didn't disappear. They, yeah. You know, they, they still have power, but, you know, but now indie labels can exist alongside. So I don't know why people don't understand that. I don't, I don't get why industry doesn't understand it. Fear, I'm sure, and, and a lack of education around what, especially in this space, what blockchain is. They say, hear blockchain, they hear crypto, and they're like, we just saw what happened with FTX. We're never going to get into crypto. Right? right. Which is, which is, which is actually, I don't like good or bad kind of labeling, but I think it's, it's very understandable. 
it's like uh there's a good story where they took the distance in a pot they would measure like a the time it took for a mouse to run through this pipe and the pipe had a piece of cheese on one end and when they starved the mouse they found that the mouse ran faster so mm. if you're hungrier you run faster towards the cheese then they took the same mouse starved it a little bit and then put cat urine behind it and that's the fastest possible yeah. time it takes to go down so imagine yeah. imagine companies only having the cheese you know this is like the you're you're stagnant you know of real no motivation from behind you're just like well we yep. can go after that we can make more money here but you're already pretty fat and happy like that's kind of where automotive industry healthcare like many places in it's just yeah. in the western world we're kind of there we're not like yep. pushed from behind then you have yeah. like hey we have to do this otherwise we're like we're in big trouble we might get eaten and die and so that's yep. that that i think that's the part of the evolutionary process in business that doesn't get enunciated well or articulated well is like for GM, these old companies, even the healthcare and insurance markets, they can be better than they are if oh, they're from behind. But it's like, you need that spark that, uh, you know, what you guys are doing is, is like, you're utilizing a new technological framework to enter the market in a way that then showcases the potential and then puts them on their heels. And ideally, like yes. one externality of your existence is that the traditional insurance market becomes more competitive and efficient. Yes. And that's it. Like they insurance, if we go back to those Lloyds of London, you know, coffeehouse days, insurance was simply we'll give you money because we have it if your boat sinks, right? Like mm -hmm. that that was the insurance has never been bad at having a lot of money right mm -hmm. what they've been bad at is trying to evolve um you know to do things that they maybe don't need to do and this technology now allows us to do that like if it was like oh wait a minute we can make five or six percent return on our capital instead of three to four yep and you don't have to deal with any of the bs that goes around we you know they'll see that and i and it's funny i love your analogy like of the the uh mouse running through the the pipe and then i think like insurance in any of the industries we're talking about if instead of a mouse you make it a cat right and at the end of it it's this big whatever cats love to eat it cheese too i think but like big bowl of yummy cat food right yeah they're gonna go eat it because they're cats but if you put that you know dog urine scent behind them they're gonna run but if you put mouse urine behind them they're not going to run. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think in the insurance industry, they assume that anybody who's creative and anybody who's innovative and maybe disruptive, they just think they're bigger and better than. So they're like, we're not afraid of you anyways. We're going to take our time and go to that big bowl of food, you yeah. know, but it's the people who were like, oh, I just put mouse urine there, but I'm really a dog. Like, you know, it's that mm -hmm. kind of, it, and it's like, it's so dumb because I don't actually don't like that kind of like war attack approach but it's like guys like you know like it, it's fine you can do your thing you can have your bowl of food like we're gonna have it too though <laughs> yeah yeah no i think it's like a that that's like the i think gandhi said that uh where he said first they ignore you then they mock you and laugh at you then they compete with you and then you win yeah it's like yeah it's kind of the that's how it goes yeah it's like, well, someone said the other day, there's, there was two, two amazing things that I've carried with me listening to other people speak. One was about, you know, blockchain's risky and it's scary and money laundering and criminals and all these like things that get said about it. And this person said, yeah, I mean, there were absolutely 
zero plane crashes before planes were invented. And he just left it. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah, that's so good. Because it's like, at first people, want, they want to respond with, exactly, whoops, no. That's a, mm-hmm. You know, but it's, it's that. And then I heard someone talking about uh, the NASDAQ and that it was set up because people were uh, brokers, traders, were taking advantage of rates. So they would charge you whatever they wanted. There was no, no transparency in it. And when NASDAQ was being set up to be more transparent about that, uh, they were up in arms, right? They were like, well, we don't want to, you're going to take money away from us. But what they failed to see from a vision standpoint is, did they, did they lose money by their rates being cut and more reasonable? They did, but they made more than they'd ever made because way more people could enter the ring and participate. Mm-hmm. So it's like, that's the mindset that I think insurance companies need to have is like, no one's going to steal from you. Like, no, that's not what's happening. You know, there is a way for you to make more money while I pay a lower premium and insurance professionals have more long-term rewards for the work they're doing. Like, it, that can all exist. Like, it seems to me like we have plenty of models that show that. Unfortunately, we have a lot of models that, that don't and they take advantage of people. Yeah. So it's a matter of just cutting through that noise. Yeah. Yeah. It's either like, well, they're either going to be Blockbuster or IBM. You're either the old company that innovates or you're the old company that dies. And whatever, you know, that just comes down to the personnel and the drive and the clarity and leadership of those specific companies. And there'll be a diversity. Some will, some won't. But either way, it's like, I think about things holistically and you want a holistically healthy ecosystem of, of development in different areas, insurance, healthcare, et cetera. And it's, it's, uh, it's fascinating to like deconstruct what it is that makes a uh, ecosystem healthy from a, mm-hmm. from a, from a large oh, I love that too. So I'm what... a big fan of whether it's ecosystem or industry, or I love taking things apart to put them back together. Like I, it's forever. Even when I was a kid is like, I just want to know how it works because it might not work efficiently. Like, and maybe it works perfectly. And if it does, then great. Yeah. Like what's the, either way, you're going to find out that you could do it better. Or you're going to find out that it's perfectly done. So like, oh, great. You know, that's, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a deeply human desire to do that too. Um, So what is it about the, the nature of the structure of the technology of blockchain that, like, how, how does that weave into this story? Like where, where, where is the opportunity Mm -hmm. here uh, to, to, to create human incentive structures that um, are better than what currently exists? There's a few. And, uh, you know, the main one is just the efficiency and speed of the technology, right? The ability for it to move super fast. And on top of that, the ability to split the penny, right? Like you can't, you know, I mean, that's, that stuff's hard to do in traditional finance that, you know, how, how do we have to do accounting and this and that and all these things that happen and siloed and underwriting department, actuary department, the technology here, you know, blockchain technology allows for efficiency and transparency. What I think a lot of people are missing in the insurance world is you have, you have to be inside the world a little bit or to hear these stories or whatever, but there's nothing stopping you from getting insurance in multiple places and filing multiple claims. I mean, it's illegal. So that would be one reason why you wouldn't want to do it. But does it happen? Are people paid multiple times for the same claim? They are. Are people paid multiple times for different fraudulent claims? They are. The systems right now are so siloed 
that that's a big expense. That expense is passed off, right? Like that's another reason. It is, it is fraud heavy in the industry. This technology allows that to be, it's never going to be gone. It's never going to be something that's gone, but it actually mitigates that because if you have three insurance policies and you file a claim on chain, all it has to do is just, you know, do the math to say, does Mike have other policies? And it says, yes. Okay, well, then we're going to have to pause right now and figure out why Mike has three policies. So it allows for efficiency. It's cost effective. It allows for transparency, which is always beneficial to rates, right? Because like the NASDAQ example, and it's happening now with uh, benefits insurance producers who don't want to reveal their what they're charging in fees why <laughs> like if you don't want to reveal it reveal it it's it's not good so this technology allows for that and then you know ultimately what it allows for is allowing other kinds of investors to participate and provide their own capital in the insurance industry there's always conversations about lack of capacity and what they mean by lack of capacity is if we need $100 billion to pay all these different random claims, we only have 50 billion. We only have access to 50 billion. But they're cutting off every retail investor in the world. It's an easy solution to a capacity problem is use the technology to be able to all those things, efficiency, cost effective, and retail investors to create a, just a more robust system. And ultimately, you get a system where everybody wins. Mm -hmm. you, initially, you touched on the idea of the multiple insurances being illegal. Is that in the blockchain world, is that only a problem when people are acting fraudulently? Because I, I can't see how it would be bad. You know, why anyone would want to do it would, would be beyond me th that you're acting Fraud, legitimately. Fraudulent. Fra right. It's only fraudulently. Yeah. yeah. They'll be the only reason because it would be like, I'm going to insure this car. Right. With three different companies, I'm going to have it stolen and right. I'm going to report it three right. times. And now I got three cars. Right. Right. You know? Right. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a way to, it's almost like leverage on your fraud. <laughs> like, yeah. Right. And, and that's that, like you said, incentivizing people that like, you know, the other example we use is like, um, if you imagine a collectibles, like marketplace where you could buy insurance for your, you know, uh, music equipment, right? Like your instrument collection. Now. An underwriter at an insurance company who's going to look at that and like just make sure, you know, all right, Mike said this guitar is worth $10,000. Here's an appraisal that says it's worth $10,000. So it's worth $10,000. Claim time comes around and you get $10,000, right? There's no expert in that process. But now imagine a decentralized insurance pool with all different insurance for all different guitars and a community of people who really love these guitars. You file that $10,000 claim and everyone can see it and everyone can say, that's a $200 guitar. Why is he claiming 10000 hmm. The experts are now a part of the community and they're incentivized to do that because if, you know, that's what happens, one bad apple kind of situation in insurance, all that fraud is costing everybody. All those, you know, taking more money than you need is costing everybody. So in this scenario, you're basically making sure that everyone's just acting in the best way for that risk pool community, which would be the people insured, the people providing money to that risk pool, which is just the insurance pool of money, and the professionals working to make sure it's profitable. So it's like 
now that disincentive loop that we talked about earlier, now we've spun it the other way and now everybody's incentivized. Right. And that wasn't possible before this technology. Lauren. Mike. So we host a podcast for Wired called Gadget Lab. We do. We do. <laughs> yes, that is correct. <laughs> Tell the good people some more about it. Well, I think the good people should definitely tune in every week because they get to hear me roasting you. Hey, now. All right. No, really what Gadget Lab is, is Mike and I tackling the biggest questions in the world of technology. I like to think of it as the best of Wired's journalism, but in audio form. We cover the big news of the week in tech land, but we also offer our expert analyses and opinions on all things consumer tech, whether that's mobile apps, hardware, startups, cryptocurrency. Mike, what's been a recent highlight episode for you? We did a deep dive on the group behind the massive Okta hack. We mm -hmm. also had a great conversation about Web3 and the metaverse. What stands out for you? Never metaverse you didn't like. <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoyed our recent podcast about Peloton. Um, and recently, the legendary tech journalist Kara Swisher joined us to talk all about Elon Musk and the future of Twitter. So I guess we should tell people how they can listen to our pod. We release a new episode of Gadget Lab every week, and you can listen and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you pod. In that third category, the people who are making the decisions about the value of the, they're effectively doing the underwriting on chain, right? That, that would be the person who's familiar with guitars. They can price guitars efficiently. Uh, they're saying this is 200, not 10,000. Yeah. They're, they're the ones who are going to, through the, through a free market of multiple players, they're going to converge on some price. Say you want this guitar insured. Well, you know, there's seven people who just cast their vote and you know, you, we're going to take the average of those and this is what insurance is going to be. Is that like mechanically, how, how does that work? Well, part of it is similar to the, you know, multiple, multiple claims and fraud, right? Is, you know, if you have a pool of in guitars, right. And you know that you have a 68 Strat and so do a hundred other people. If yours is overinflated, that information is known right away. So it's already enough to give you pause, right? There's not even human intervention involved. It's just, this doesn't match the other ones. Mm -hmm. The other side of that is the underwriters can determine the rates. It would be more of an appraiser role that determines the value. And by opening up, you know, let's compare like traditional insurance and then, you know, built on blockchain insurance. If it's traditional insurance and a appraisal comes across a desk for someone that says it's a $10,000 guitar, they have to trust the appraisal because it's a certified appraisal. Maybe it's a specialty program that they can bounce it off some people. But now this is all bouncing it off some people who may be at lunch, who may be on vacation, who may, it's inefficient, right? This decentralized insurance is Mike insures a $10,000 guitar. Oh, weird. When we, when we bounce this off comps, it looks inflated. Hey, risk pool community. Can everyone just have eyes on this? If you want, you don't have to. And a hundred people look at it and say, no, that's legit because he has upgraded this, that, the other thing, we're good to go. That can happen. That consensus can be reached in minutes. And then everyone can be paid. Again, we're talking about like a fraction of a penny. Like everyone can be paid for that. Like everyone can be given a nimble token or, you know, X amount USD, whatever it may be for their participation. The money spent is far lower than the fraud that could be, could have been claimed. Hmm. And it helps weed out and identify like, why does this wallet address keep putting in fraudulent 
more inflated claims all over the place. The intent is not to deny the real value. The t- intent is to make sure that that pool is has as few bad apples in it as possible right. so that everyone, the system can only work if everything is running on that kind of, I hate to say honor system, but built that way with the incentivized, incentivized measure. Is the right sort of um, dynamic to think about this is like, the, you want to optimize the, the, how would you say this? It's like the, the accuracy versus the dollar. So it's like, I want a correct assessment of what this piece of property is worth for money spent. So you can, ha- you can assume everyone's working remote, you know, no one's like in the bathroom, but you have a, you have a traditional insurance company, one underwriter, maybe a couple where they bounce it off each other. You know, that's all, say it's super efficient, sent in Discord, Slack, you know, no difference there. Mm-hmm. They're giving their input. Maybe they're trained experts and there's three of them versus, and you have to pay them a salary versus a mm-hmm. decentralized might be 50 people, but presumably they're not as good. You know, they're kind of casually doing this. Is that, is that the comparison, like on, on a scale, like, like? Minus the, they're not as good, right? This is, this is another thing that I use too is. I get that a lot and not, not as pointed as that, but I, people ask like, how are we going to trust these people? Like, how are we going to trust that they know what they're doing and they're doing Mm -hmm. a good job? And what I always ask in return is, yeah, you know, how did you determine when you had coffee with your underwriter for your car? Like, how did you determine during that coffee date, like that everything was good with them? And, and, you know, of course they laugh and they're like, yeah, I don't know who my underwriter is. I'm like, right. They have credentials. They've been hired and they have training. The same thing can happen in a decentralized world. Verify uh, a license or a designation, and now they're credentialed. But in that so, example, you know, say you have 50 people on a decentralized side, and then you have three people on the other side. If they're, if they're equal, assuming equal level of qualification and training, then wouldn't the cost just be linearly proportioned higher? It's not. It's, they're not employees of Nimble. They're decentralized. So they're not getting a salary. They're being paid for the work they do and the quality of the work they do. They're getting that, you know, the return and the yield from that risk pool in proportion to the work they did and the good work they did. So this isn't something that they would come in and just sit there and only work for Nimble. At some point, I'm sure it would. Uh, but it's like, you know, you're basically allowing someone a side hustle. Like, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like someone to be able to come yeah. in and do the work that they do in a more efficient way. And something that I think is super cool that it's very rare that anyone else thinks is cool. I always think about the underwriter or the actuary that built this, like, let's take actuary. So they put in the work for a premium model, right? And it's super good. It's wildly profitable. It makes so much sense. What if another risk pool wants to use that? And they use that. And the underwriter continues to now have royalties, basically, for all these risk pools Mm -hmm. using their amazing model. That doesn't exist anywhere else. If that was the traditional space, that underwriter made that model for that company and that company alone. And that's their secret sauce or their pre. In this way, the underwriter controls that. The actuary controls that. It can be used by other risk pools and it's going to just continue to give them, you know, income, continue to generate income for them. So that's another way that this technology is advanced. And and like, technically speaking, would it be possible to start this? without any decent any like blockchain technology where you said okay we're gonna have you know sign up on our website you can be a contractor 1099 you know press the button on the website once you get over ten dollars we'll send you 
ACH transfer, but you, we, mm-hmm. we have like a list on the website of different uh, assessments that you can give. Like wh- wh- where, where's the point at which you say, okay, this is impossible to do through like a, a regular website and 1099 and payouts. Yeah. I just think it's the, the, um, first of all, I, I do firmly believe that it's, you know, the web 2.5 narrative, yeah. the most yeah, accurate for right now. Like <laughs> I do believe that. Um, I don't think that I don't I don't think it could be done fully web two because I don't think I think all those inefficiencies end up creating a system that doesn't work in the way you want it to. I also think it's not scalable. I think it's not it doesn't become a system where you could build an insurance risk pool for any risk at any time very efficiently and very fast. Uh, but it's also a system that we want to be successful and want it to be secure, and we put a lot of thought into that. So we have an insurance team at Nimble that's working with these initial project partners to build these models and to understand these risks as a building block to move forward. So we're not going to keep those and be super precious with them. It's more like, let's just make sure that we can show insurance professionals, LPs, insureds, that this model actually is borrowing from a 300-year-old industry that has been very successful. So we're not trying to just, I don't know, it's 5%, I guess, pay us 5%. We'll see what happens. It's very much risk-based. So we're doing that so that the building blocks are there to continually build, you know, a bigger, bigger community. Interesting. Gotcha. Do you think one of the areas that maybe blockchain enables you to, to, to do would be like just enter the market in the first place? You know, we were talking about how the barriers to entry. Mm. Is it? Let me ask you this. Is it is it le- illegal to, like, which side is illegal? Is it illegal to purchase insurance <laughs> if you're in, like, Massachusetts? Or is it illegal to start an insurance company in Massachusetts? And if that's the case, what if I started an insurance company? Like, why does it matter where I'm located? I started in the Bahamas, and then somebody in Massachusetts mm-hmm. buys from that person in the Bahamas. I mean, it, it could... It's, like, wildly, wildly complicated because... If it's not insurance, it doesn't need to be regulated, right? So you'll see a lot of decentralized insurance, quote unquote, um, protocols or, or projects, but they they make it they make certain to say this is not insurance. Insurance means a very specific thing from regulation. Now to complicate it, you have different jurisdictions in the U.S. You have fifty different states with fifty different opinions on it. There are states like Wyoming and. Vermont, uh, that are very open to this conversation from an insurance standpoint, and this gets back to your, you know, the uh, vibrant economy, they're not as big as California or, you know, New York. So they're interested in becoming a leader in this, right? Um, But it's not illegal to buy it. It's not that if someone bought insurance, what would, what the term insurance implies is that there are certain capital requirements that are met to ensure that you're not going to go under, right? So when you hear that term, you're basically, when you say to someone, would you like to buy insurance? The assumption is you have enough money to pay claims. Mm -hmm. There are some other platforms that avoid the term insurance because really all they are is a liquidity pool that can pay claims. And once they run out, they're not paying anymore. Right, right, right. They don't necessarily have it all. Yeah. And And the reason why this is, I would imagine why the government initially got involved is that Individually, if I crash my car, 
even if I don't have 100% collateralization uh, on the total pool, not a big deal. But if a whole, you know, if a whole neighborhood burned down and I'm a local insurance provider, then you have to have 100% mm -hmm. of what you're insuring in yeah. cash, right? Or something there, thereabouts. Yeah. And it's, and it's no different than banking. And, mm -hmm. you know, this is the other thing too, that like, you know, I, you, after FTX, a lot of people were like, you know, they should do what banks do and hold a hundred, they hold one to one, you know, they like, hate to break it to you. Banks don't. No. Do yeah. Let me, like, <laughs> I ask you a question on this. So we've had a yeah. couple of times, you know, the great depression where banks were caught lending out more than money than they had. And people came, everyone came back all at once and wanted their yep. money. It wasn't there. 2008, very similar structure to, to that arrangement. You're lending out more than you have. Everyone comes back and you, you know, you're all dried up. FTX, same thing. Has it not happened in insurance? Does, let me ask you, does insurance companies, do insurance companies always have one-to-one -one or is it more that pe people just aren't ever going to all make a claim at the same time? Like if there's. It's a little bit of both. Yeah. So in insurance, uh, in insurance, there's capacity towers, right? Mm. So that's why they, you see reinsurance companies have reinsurance and reinsurance is basically insurance for an insurance company. Okay. So I'm an insurance company, say, that has, you know, $20 million in the bank. But on paper, I have $100 million worth of risk. The reason I carry $20 million is because based on the diversification of my risk, right, like maybe it's cars all over the country. So the odds of everyone having an accident or everyone's car getting stolen at the same time, it's non-existent. So, but because I want to maintain that kind of solvency compliance and regulatory compliance, I then buy insurance from, you know, another reinsurer at, for $5 million and I pay them 2% of the premiums for that. And it keep buying. So I ultimately have in like black swan event, I have enough insurance coverage there, but it's not just sitting in the bank mm -hmm. and it, and it shouldn't be like, that wouldn't be worth, like if banks just kept money in a vault. Right. That wouldn't, it wouldn't work because then how are they making money? They're going to have to increase their fees. They're going to have to do something else. So, but it, there is a responsibility and there is certain risk management that should be in place. And then, you know, when you bring up the, the great depression, I think that's important when you think about prior to, so the bank, the great depression really is what forced FDIC, which is, you know, insurance for banks. But what a lot of people sometimes forget or overlook is that that insurance is paid for by banks, but it protects you and me. So prior to FDIC, there were 4,000 bank failures and, you know, millions of dollars in lost deposits. After the FDIC, in the years following the Great Depression, there were nine bank failures. So this is another example of collaboration, right? The FDIC is insurance for my deposits and your deposits paid for by the bank, which means I feel safe that I'm going to get my money when I need it. And it also stopped banks from going out of business because you and I now feel comfortable leaving our money in them. Yeah. To me, in, in the FTX situation, in blockchain, I'm like, it, it's that, but it's that decentralized. Why couldn't FTX and Binance and all, anybody take, like an FDIC is too two basis points, why not take two, three, four basis points into a risk pool that can protect someone if a system goes down? You want mass adoption 
then do that. Like it, it isn't, it's like, we always try to get close to it. Like, well, proof of reserves. I'm like, yeah, yeah. great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, you're effectively, what's you're, that gonna do? I would imagine that there's, there's an, we're, we're in like a strong, uh, like decentralization fanboy stage or ideology stage where it's like every, the mm -hmm. more decentralized, the better. But I think that that lacks a certain nuanced understanding of how the economy works and how people work. And that centralization provides value in the market where complete decentralization is, is vulnerable. And that the, the centralization complemented with, with decentralization is, is optimal. Where you're right, mm -hmm. like government is effectively just pooling resources together, albeit, yeah. you know, mandatory. If you were to have like uh, five exchanges come together, pool resources, take a few basis points, put a collateral together and then call it, I mean, decentral, F, you know, CDIC. It's like, right. And not controlled by the government. I don't want the government yeah. to control that. And I don't want it to be mandatory. But if I'm a user and I'm about to put my money in a, what, in anything, let's call it a centralized exchange, custodial, you know, yes or no arguments aside. And I'm like, oh, I'm about to transfer over. And I'm like, wait, why don't they have the CDIC logo? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, Oh, they made a conscious decision not to contribute. Right, right. Then I'm going to move over to Mike's because Mike's right. has the CDIC logo and I'll put it there. Right. And it, I want it to be transparent that it's up to 50,000, up to 10,000, whatever the number is. But it doesn't seem, and no one, and in, in a decentralized way, you can do that without, with it still being the money of those companies. And those foundations, whatever blockchain layer, yeah. whatever, those foundations, it can still be theirs. It can still be theirs, but it can still be handled and transparent in a smart contract in the event someone makes horrible decisions and folds and bank run, like you said, comes from people literally running to the bank and saying, give me my money. And the bank saying, we don't have it. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Well, let me make let me make this point. I almost think that this 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 doesn't get articulated well either. And I I honestly hadn't thought about it until now. Is that inside of the centralized traditional structure, there is an embedded price, an, an embedded reality that if things get really bad, you know where the point of a point point of attack is. Like I can go to the Capitol building or the bank or the insurance company headquarters, and there's a guy that's going to be there, an office, and like. And you, you can, you can get together, you can protest, you can riot, you can revolt, wh whatever the thing is. And there's, and because of that, there has to be uh, a certain kind of, um, uh, uh, th that, that behavior is factored in. Whereas like decentralized, mm -hmm. if you just took the money and it's all decentralized network, it's like, where are people going now to get their money back from FTX? FTX money is gone. Where'd it go? Well, if it was in the banking world, you could trace it. You know, it's, it's got to be within a bank. Oh, this bank took it. We're going to go to their headquarters and we're going to talk to this guy. But there's actually no getting it back in decentralization. So I, I think the, either the price goes up as a reaction because there's no, like, you know, you can't, you can't enforce anything in a black swan event. Or you have, like what you propose, that uh, CDIC and kind of a decentralized recentralization. Yeah. That's and everyone's, you know, everyone's going to benefit from it. And, you know, in the event of a good year, say, 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 you, you know, build that? Are you, Adam, are you working on this? You should build this. Oh, God damn. I, that's one of my first things is like, it's just you. I keep hearing things like, you know, CZ is going to raise money to put aside for a recovery fund. I'm like, why are we raising money for a recovery fund when we are? Yeah. 
collectively, everyone could just contribute to it. Like, what is 2% going to hurt at whatever, 240 billion or trillion or whatever they project it to be? It's, it's okay. Like, you know, and then that money can, yeah, the, the, I can't, we can't build that alone, but I really think it would go a long way to have a bunch of projects come together, cross chains, all kinds of projects and be willing to explore that. Yeah. Because what, I mean, again, we'll use that same data from the great depression where if I'm a bank and I hear a number like 4,000 banks have shut down because they couldn't handle it. And then after the FDIC, nine banks, I'm like, well, that's actually good for me as a corporation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, right. That that's actually good for me. So maybe I'm paying basis points. And, and I believe strongly in that kind of collaboration of insurance moving forward where you're an insured and you're paying a premium into a risk pool. And so is an LP providing capital. Well, you're both contributing. You're not just giving the LP money. You're contributing to that risk pool. Your premiums are going to be used to pay claims actually before an LP's money is going to be used. So in a good year, you get to take some money back and the LP made some money and now makes extra money. It's it's just like, it has to be done in that way mm-hmm. where there's a collaboration. And I think CDIC, as much as I've never, mm. I had never thought of that before is that, you know, or DDIC or, you know, yeah. whatever it may be. Like, you know, yeah, I, I'm a big proponent of that. I actually, you know, wrote a piece on that that was on Coindesk. And I just, it it feels obvious to me. And once you get, for me at least, once I get over something at first, when something's obvious, it feels like, oh, it's not going to work. But then if you get past the it's not going to work part and it will work and it's obvious, it just seems to me like, uh, well, he, I, you well, know, I, I, the caveats I would make if I'm going to poke holes in it would be that mm-hmm. the government doesn't need to maintain any cash balance in order to guarantee the funds in the banks because the government, unlike crypto, has the ability to take money from people against their will because they have guns and they have organization to do <laughs> And so I think like that, that'd be like as if there was a central party that had had multi-sig access to everyone's wallets, right? And they could just, anytime they wanted, they could just take it out. I mean, the gov- if a government came to me and sent me a letter and said, hey, Mike, you owe us 10,000 for this special tax thing, I have to pay it. Like, I, you know, they have access to, effectively, they, they have access to take that. And maybe that means there's just a cap. So it's like, well, the exchanges aren't capped, but FDIC isn't, right? It's like 100K or there's some cap on there. Yeah, 250. 250, yeah. right. So maybe it's maybe it's lower, maybe maybe it's 250, but either way, there's a... That's exactly how I would build. Yeah. yeah 100%. Because you don't even need to take people's money if, if you're saying charging two basis points, one basis point, whatever. I mean, how awesome would it be to know that you had $10,000 worth of coverage? Like any amount at this point, mm-hmm. right? Like... And to me, it's like you could build that model at, from an actuarial standpoint to make sure it, it works for everybody. And if you're going to pay, depending on the riskiness of your platform, one to three basis points, you know, that can be automatic in this space. Every time a deposit goes in. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. One percent. It could. And just move one percent, move two percent. And then there would just be a pool. So you're basically trading the centralization that the government has to take people's money in exchange for the 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 fact that you have that you have to keep the collateral in an account like the government doesn't mm-hmm. have 
$20 billion just sitting somewhere ready to go in case the banks fail, mm -hmm. but it can get it. Whereas you can't get yep. it. Like you can't, you have to have it uh, in a- yep. in, Yeah, there would have to be some kind of protection there, like you said, from multi-sig as well. So it's not just like, we're going to all start doing it. You know, right. it, you know, if there's, if it's a, um, you know, if it's a DAO of all the organizations contributing and, you know, you need consensus and signature from the majority, then, mm -hmm. you know, all those things that I would let someone much smarter than me yeah. handle in the process, but it's, it's doable. It's interesting. I, I know I promised you an hour, but I just realized we're running over. We could keep going too, I think. Um, well, I, the one thing I'll add to that is it seems like the fact, the fact that the United States in particular has this decentralization of voting mechanism seems like you'd want to replicate that in a sense where the people who have control, at least in theory, to take money out of my account by force are the same, is the same, you know, albeit that's an inefficient system. You could have a similar system where like, we're all going to vote for the people who are ultimately hold the centralization power. So there's like, nine people and then we need five of those keys to actually take money out of people's accounts and we're going to vote on those people like you need there needs to be a re-centralization yeah words and voting yeah and i was talking i was talking to someone about that they were building decentralized identity platform and they were talking about the ability for you to still own your let's just use data in in their example but it could be the same you still own your data i am a platform that wants to protect that data and then there's i don't know there's a banking authority like whatever or there's a consortium that want to also do it well in order for that money or that or for me to access your data you need to approve it and i need to approve it or you need to approve it and the other authority does i think the example they use was like mike controls his data nimble has access to the data and now the government is like, I need to know about Mike because Mike is a bad person, right? Like they can't just unilaterally go get that. You need to be involved in it or Nimble needs to be involved in it. But if Nimble says, I want to access Mike's data and you're like, no. Mm -hmm. And whoever this other authority is like, no, you can't randomly access. It, it just adds another layer of protection where to your point today, it's like, but we have guns. Mm -hmm. And it's like, all right, then I guess you can have my data. Yeah. Like, you know, it's it's that kind of. Which is. It's still. Which is kind of, just to add on that. It's like it's interesting now because the guns are very relevant as a mechanism for defense against a government that is uh, overreaching. It's like, you know, we, we and yeah. I think that gets a lot left out of the conversation. But the reason why it's the Second Amendment, the second most important thing that the founders had in mm -hmm. mind was like they came from a world a couple hundred years ago where governments were overreaching and they did make yeah. drastic and unreasonable claims by threat of violence. And to, for everyone to have a mechanism of defense was, that was the thinking. Like, of course there's like the home ownership and protection and hunting and things, but like- Yeah, but you're right. It, it, yeah, I mean, it was- And I asked like, what would like sophisticated? Are, are we different? Ha have our minds changed? Ha has some structural thing happened to where that's no longer a threat? Or are we, are we sleeping on that? And is that, I mean, I, I didn't think it, yeah, of course it is. Like, we're not different people conceptually than World War II and Holocaust and the revolutions. Like, same biology, just different tools in front of us. Well, I, I, you know, and I would hope that we've evolved a little over the time. I mean, I, and I do think that you're, you're right. If you look at it from someone else's point of view, like who 
yeah, what is your line of defense? If, if, if you're truly afraid of that overreaching and that's your feeling is the only way you can defend yourself, it's not how I feel, but someone might feel that way. But if they have another way mm-hmm. to defend themselves or, a, you know, yeah, it's interesting to think what that looks like. And that's what they talk about, you know, blockchain could create a, you know, utopian or dystopian future, depending on on which way you look at it. But there's so many of these things. It's like, you know, robots are going to take jobs. And I'm like, ultimately, in a perfect world, if there is automated jobs, that means, to your point, the cost of that bowl or that box of cereal should be less, which means the cost of living is less, which means I don't need to work 60 hours a week and everyone wins, but I don't necessarily trust the market to go in that direction instead of just being like, oh, yay, now our profit is 40% instead of 20. Yeah. Like, and that's where you have that, how do we protect ourselves? Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully it's with different tools besides guns. That, 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 that for me, the analogy that comes to mind in this example is like a forest fire where you, you don't, you actually want consistent, low velocity, low magnitude forest fires that just propagate, you know, through, we get 5, 10, mm-hmm. 20, 30, you know, every few years. You don't want like no forest fires and then a massive inferno that kills everything. So I think like we're yep. in California, West Coast is slowly realizing that. But I think that slow realization is the same kind of realization in, in the economy, albeit more abstract because yeah. you can't see the fire physically. But it's like you kind of yeah. want you want banks to fail. You want like a couple banks a year to fail, but you don't want like 4,000 in one year to fail. It's like, <laughs> exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Like, and that's exactly the point, right? Because it's like, okay, so I'm a bank and I failed. I'm one of the nine banks that failed. Um, yeah. There's probably a reason. Yeah. Right. Like you're saying, like, yeah, something had to happen there. You know, it, to me, it's, and I, and I even think like this concept of the economy and forest fires and all of it, you know, and I, I'm pulling it up now because I want to get it right, but there's a quote when like, Oh, here it is from the presidential advisor during the Great Depression. And the quote is, we knew how much of banking depended on make believe or stated more conservatively, the vital part that public confidence has in ensure assuring solvency. And I read that and I'm like, they're literally describing the U.S. dollar as make believe. And here we are now. Talking about crypto as fake money, magic money, make believe money, and it's like. It already is make-believe. So we don't need to try to add that level of complexity and confuse and scare people. Mm-hmm. It already is. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. And back at the Great Depression, the, a presidential advisor is saying that. Like, yeah, it's make-believe. If the economy works when it, there's confidence in the economy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It, it seems like that's a, a feature, not a bug, that it's make-believe. Because then it can move quickly. It's abstract. So you have different yes mechanisms for allocation or deployment of that money and you can let math in 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 on blockchain and decentralize like you can let math yeah be the the decision maker in that like right yes no that's yeah it. not subjective like yes but i don't like where michael is yeah or no but maybe my neighbor can get that if yes or no yeah yeah <laughs> like right yeah it's interesting to think about Cool, man. Uh, well, I really enjoyed our conversation so far. Where, where are you learning stuff? Are you following any people in particular, books or blogs online that uh, you've turned you know, to? Um, 
in this space, it's it's the it's the typical ones. It's just you know Twitter really, and just reading articles that other people share. Um, but I'm a firm believer that to learn in this space, it's about drawing connections between things that aren't in this space. So it's reading, you know, anything from you know innovative work practices to innovative family practices to you know things about jazz and and I just watched the Amy Winehouse documentary mm. again the other night. Like for me, learning is not in one lane. It's it's the ability to learn enough about a bunch of things to be able to draw those lines. So that's that's the way I've always been. I get focused on something and I'm excited and curious mm-hmm. and I'll just dig into it. And then there's always that moment where you're like, wait a minute, this is just like this thing, mm. you know, and, and and drawing that. So that's that's how I handle it. Last question for you. If if uh Someone feels the intuitive draw to learn a new instrument. I know you play piano and went to school at Berkeley Music. Yeah. What's the best way, given all the tools that are available in today's world, to learn? And then why should someone learn? What is, what is being proficient in a musical instrument? What does that bring to somebody's life? That's an awesome question. So I would say first, I think of the idea of being proficient in an instrument, like the idea of success, like it isn't. It isn't a one size fits all, right? Um, some of my favorite pianists, like like Thelonious Monk and then Chick Corea. Chick Corea is a clearly technically more proficient player than Thelonious Monk, no doubt. But Thelonious Monk is absolutely brilliant. So I would say, you know, um, the tools, I, I think it's the same for learning anywhere. Like for me, I learned piano by sitting at a piano and just trying to figure it out the best I could. And then getting really engrossed in, oh, wait, this thing that I just did is already a chord and it it means this. And that just kept me going. Whatever works, if you want to, like my son, Brendan has been teaching himself piano and he's, he's 20. So like, you know, he's been using YouTube and it's amazing to see the progress he makes. But it also instills that love in him where he's like, oh, I want to go to the next level. Like I want to do the next thing, Mm. right? I want my left hand to get better or I want this. So I would say whatever you're comfortable with, but just remember that, you know, there's like the Prince guitar solo from um, While My Guitar Gently Weeps tribute, which you haven't seen that. It's amazing. But then there's the Neil Young guitar solo from Cinnamon Girl, which is one note for like a minute. You don't, don't get distracted. The benefit of music is determination, dedication, and it fires every part of your brain. Mm. Your, your brain will just be lit up even at the smallest thing and you can never perfect it. There's no such thing. Mm-hmm. So it's awesome. Adam, congrats on the progress so far. I hope you guys uh, continue Thanks, to build some really meaningful technology and uh, improve the world for the better. I hope that's the case. Yeah. I appreciate that. All right. Take care, man. Thanks so much, Mike. Thank you for listening to Around the Coin. If you enjoyed the show today, consider giving us a quick review wherever you listen to podcasts tweet about it or text it to a friend. We really appreciate all the support and growing that we can. If you have any guests you'd like us to bring on or feedback for us, don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you.
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.